0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman.
1: Caitlin Collins is an assistant professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis, and author of Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. Her book, is a cross-national interview study of 135 working mothers in Sweden, Germany, Italy, and the United States. Her research has been published in peer-reviewed journals and has been featured in the popular press, including in The Atlantic, Forbes, New York Times, The Washington Post, elsewhere. She is a 2019 Nancy Weiss Malkiel Scholar, a 2018 Work and Family Researchers Network Early Career Fellow, and a contributor for The Atlantic, The New York Times, and Slate. In this episode, Caitlin and I discuss the cross-national differences she observed in her research on working mothers in these four countries. It was only the American women who blamed themselves for the stresses and strains of life as a working mother. In other nations... Women understood there were external constraints out of their immediate control that affected the stress they feel from conflict between work and the rest of their lives, and they expected the community, the society, the government, to collectively invest in the essential tasks of caring for rearing the future generation of taxpayers, of employees, of people. They grasped that this is not just a private family responsibility, but a shared responsibility. Apart from voting to create change in our social policy, which of course is essential, Caitlin offers other ideas for how we Americans can orchestrate ways of being exposed to people different from ourselves outside of our own immediate communities so we can better understand and feel more genuinely, to be part of the common wheel and thereby passionately, compassionately invest in all aspects of society, especially our children. Well, I hope you like the Work in Life podcast. And if you do, I would so much appreciate it if you would rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you're picking up this podcast so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it too. Yes, please rate and review it. So now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from the fascinating and critically important research of Caitlin Collins. Caitlin, welcome to Work and Life.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Stu.
1: Well, it's it's great to have you here. So... Um, thank you for doing this work and and for joining us. I'd like to start with, well, Allison's story uh, that you write about in your book, uh, the source of inspiration for uh, for this work. Could you just tell us briefly how you got into this and how Allison's story sort of informs this project?
0: Sure. So I start the book by telling Allison's story. And Allison is a working mom who worked in corporate sales and marketing for many years and was very successful. She had two children and worked hard to manage both employment and caregiving at the same time and as is the case in most u.s families she was primarily responsible for the domestic sphere her husband Mm -hmm. also working in a white collar um you know high achieving occupation and uh allison struggled to try and make motherhood work uh, that's the title of the book for years and she ended up getting divorced and she tried to juggle work and family responsibilities in this high-flying career trajectory for a number of years and then decided that she'd had enough, and she quit. Uh, she ended up accepting a job as a consultant that was part-time, that lacked benefits, but mm-hmm. it gave her the flexibility. She wanted to be at home more with her children. A choice and many
1: women have had to make.
0: You're exactly right, that I think too many women have had to make. And uh, I agree. And Allison is my own mom, <laughs> which I disclose at the beginning of the book, so mm-hmm. spoiler for all of you, unfortunately, dear listeners. The <laughs> problem in, in Allison's story in particular was this sense that she blamed herself for how difficult it was to Mm. manage employment and caregiving. And I thought to myself as a kid that there has got to be a better way for us to organize work and family life, and that's the motivation behind the cross-national study.
1: How did you know that she was blaming herself?
0: Because she apologized a lot. Hmm. I wish that wasn't the case. I mean, she and I have had many conversations about this in the years since, but um, she apologized for things like... um, taking us to McDonald's often for dinner, or eating pizza, or coming late to a soccer game, for example, Mm -hmm. and um, I thought my mom was extra wonderful for giving us McDonald's and pizza, (laughs) and only in the years since did she tell me she felt guilty, like a bad mom, and I was like, Mm -hmm. oh, I thought you were just extra special. (laughs) Hmm. So it's this disconnect between our expectations of ourselves and what we're actually able to accomplish with 24 Hours in a Day that left moms like mine in the lurch, and that continues to be the case today.
1: And that disconnect and the the attribution that she made to the source of the problem is is really at the heart of your project as as I understand it that is to say the 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 attribution that it was her fault somehow
0: exactly right and I knew that my mom blamed herself growing up because she apologized a lot. But when I began this project conducting interviews with working mothers in the the four countries that you mentioned, what became so painfully clear to me was that American mothers are unique in blaming themselves mm-hmm. for their work-family conflict. Mothers in Sweden and Germany and Italy understood that there were external constraints that sometimes made it difficult for them, for them to manage both work and family.
1: And and so you you sensed that, I guess, in conversations with her since um, and also of course in the the interviews you did with American women, that uh, that they don't have that same understanding. they somehow Absolutely. make a different inference as to you know where the problem should be solved
0: exactly and here in the u s we we tend to think of families as a private and personal responsibility, our welfare state model is based around this liberal idea that families can turn to the market to to find solutions for their problems. And um, different Western welfare states have have gone about resolving the tension between work and family very differently. Um, Let me jump in here,
1: Caitlin, and ask you to define what you mean by welfare state.
0: Yeah. So um, our system of of welfare provisioning here in the U.S. the ways that we structure our economy, the ways uh, the agreements that we have between employers and employees, mm-hmm. and um, how that triangulates with the government and um, nonprofit organizations, for example, the welfare state is the the governmental organization of our daily lives.
1: Okay. So the way that's organized here, you were saying.
0: Mm-hmm. The way that's organized here is that. We assume that families are a private responsibility. This means that folks are meant to turn to the market. So, for example, if you have a child, the idea is if you struggle to to manage both employment and caregiving, you can turn to the market and pay for child care to provide for your child. And other Western countries, like those where I did interviews, have found different ways to collectivize this uh, responsibility for child rearing. And not only have they collectivized the labor, but also the expense of it. So here in the U.S. today... Um, so by
1: collectivized, you mean yeah. that it is not, not so much an individual's responsibility as the shared responsibility of uh, groups or nation, or you know, cities or... Of or, citizens, or, of, uh,
0: of, of all members of a mm-hmm, society, mm-hmm. which is a really different way to understand our commitments to one another as... Community members and as fellow citizens of the U.S.
1: Mm-hmm. So, can you briefly describe the field research that you did uh, uh, in internationally and in the U.S. and what the important differences were?
0: Sure. So, I, I conducted interviews from 2011 to 2015 with working moms in. Sweden and Germany and Italy and here in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get a sense for what it was like for them day to day to be a working mom in these countries that had very different cultural attitudes about men and women, about employment and about caregiving, and also very different work family policies um, across the four countries. I wanted to see what it was like for women to navigate employment and motherhood in four different countries.
1: And I should Um, say that your study is unique in the sense that well, there have been cross-national comparisons, uh, you know, over the years, uh, looking at you know policy differences. You really were you dug into the experiences of people of working mothers in these in these different uh, national social contexts, and were able to talk to them and, and hear the 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 you know in depth the nuances of their stories. And that's I think one of the important contributions that you've made here. Do I have that right?
0: Exactly. Thank you, Stu. I think I wanted to be able to hand something uh, like this book to someone like my mom Mm -hmm. and say, this is what it's like somewhere else. Can we envision a world for ourselves here that is better and more just and less hectic Mm -hmm. and more enjoyable? Um, Mm -hmm. And so the impetus for the project started with talking to women like my mom in other places to see what it's like for them to balance work and family in these very different contexts.
1: All right, so let's lay it out as you do in the book. Uh, but obviously, we're not going to be able to get into all the detail here. But uh, can you can you give us sort of the the gist of what you discovered about the variations across these these four nations?
0: Yeah. So the major takeaway is that I learned that what mothers want and expect when it comes to combining work and family differ a lot across these four countries, and. The social context plays a really big role in shaping what women can envision as possible and Mm -hmm. desirable for themselves. (laughs) So in a country like Sweden, women wanted and expected to be able to work full time outside the home while also being deeply involved in the daily lives of their their family and their children. Um, That is not an expectation that women everywhere held. So women there, for example, in Sweden would laugh when I use the phrase working mother out loud. Um, They would say that doesn't even exist in Swedish. There's no translation because, of course, you're a working mom. They're completely compatible identities. Hmm. And American moms would laugh at that idea, right, because they feel competing here. Hmm. Um, Well, it's almost
1: like like in America the word working father seems like, uh, like a phrase that doesn't make sense because it's assumed that the father would be working. Right?
0: Exactly right. We, we assume that men with kids are breadwinners and that moms or women with kids um, may be breadwinners but are primarily committed to raising their kids.
1: All right. So the term working mother was just like a nonsensical term to the Swedish people you spoke to.
0: Exactly right. They really did laugh when I used that phrase out loud, because it's expected that women work and raise kids at the same time. And in fact, men and employers and the government support them in those endeavors. Um, Men tend to participate heavily in the domestic sphere, and there are a a host of policies available for, for mothers in Sweden and for fathers to enable them to balance both work and family in ways that they found highly satisfying.
1: What are the most important of
0: those? What are the most important of those? They have a gender-neutral paid parental leave. Mm -hmm. Um, They offer 480 days to parents, um, and the intention is that that's divided equally between men and women if they're in a heterosexual partnership. 480
1: days, people. Did you hear that? (laughs)
0: And not only is it 480 days due, it's paid out at 80% wage replacement, and in most cases as a result of collective bargaining agreements, because most Swedes are unionized, they in fact get paid up to 90 or 100% of their wages during those 480 days.
1: Wow. So I'm going to ask you later in this conversation, Caitlin, why you're not living in Sweden, but we're going to get back to that. <laughs> um, Sounds good. Uh, unless, unless indeed you are planning to emigrate.
0: Uh, I'll, I'll be there this summer, but not with the intention of moving, just <laughs> all right, all right. colleagues and friends. <laughs> all right.
1: But it's, we're, we're here to make change happen in America. That's exactly. that's kind of the purpose of this show at some level. Uh, and you're going to help us with that. So, yes, uh, you know, we and we've talked about the cross-national comparisons with respect to f- family and medical leave here, but you're, you're putting it in very stark terms. 480 days paid?
0: Exactly right. And the important thing to note about the Swedish leave system is that you can use those leave days flexibly anytime time up until your child is eight years old. So if you want to work three days a week for a number of years and take two days a week of parental leave, you are welcome to do that. It's your legal right to use mm. those days flexibly.
1: And fathers use those days, too?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Sweden was the first country in the world in 1974 to implement paid parental leave to both parents. Mm-hmm. And um, virtually all men in Sweden take it these days. Women still take more, a, a greater share of those 480 days than do men. But in fact, the Swedish government is so invested in the idea of gender equality that from 20, 2008 to 2016, the Swedish government offered a gender equality bonus, which was literally a monthly check that couples would get in the mail if they split their leave days equally. The more equal they split them, the more money they got in the check.
1: Wow! So there's a direct financial incentive for uh, for um, people who are raising children together to share that responsibility. Now, I have to tell you, Caitlin. You know, I've been in this uh, in this field for a long time, and. I helped to organize a conference, uh, it must be almost 30 years ago now, where we had some, some people from Sweden. Uh, and I was speaking with a few of the men, mm-hmm. and this is late 80s, early 90s. Things were different then,
0: yeah.
1: uh, which is an important point of reference. And I'm sure you know this, because you know things have changed since then, because what those guys were telling me, one of them said, well, for me to take leave and to be at home raising my child it's kind of almost the same as wearing women's underwear. I mean, that's what he said, I'm quoting. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a feminization of, of his, you know, social role in the world. And he was, it was stigmatized. Mm-hmm. That has, according to your research and others we've, we've heard about, has radically changed. I wonder if you, in your, in your study, were able to discern, uh, you know, what, what caused that shift over these past few decades.
0: Great question and this is really it gets to the crux of so much of the the research on this topic that I find fascinating it's this question of the intersection of our of our cultural attitudes with policies, mm-hmm.
2: right?
0: So in Sweden they implemented a policy that sort of tugged the cultural attitudes in a progressive direction. Mm-hmm. They implemented a policy that seemed perhaps a bit fantastical at the time but then they incentivized men financially to take advantage of this, this new policy provision. And it's the that incentive that I think made it seem more culturally acceptable for men to take the leave. It didn't call into question their masculinity to take paid parental leave because, mm-hmm. again, they were incentivized to do so. So it felt logical, like the logical financial decision for their family. Yeah,
1: like you'd be stupid not to.
0: Exactly. And within one generation, Stu, what we've seen is an astounding um, uptick in the amount of parental leave that men take. And today, Mm -hmm. men in Sweden would tell you that it would be quite culturally unacceptable for them not to share the leave with their partners. It would be frowned upon and stigmatized.
1: So that's a 180 in one generation. Exactly. So we can do this.
0: We can do this. We can 100% do this.
1: 100%, Caitlin.
0: (laughs) That's my my optimism coming in here. Well, we, often, we often think these issues are inevitable and that this conflict we face between work and family is going to be this way forever. But these are issues societies have created, and that means we can change them, too.
1: Well, yes. And, you know, 20 years ago, I published a book called Work and Family, Allies or Enemies with my friend and colleague, Jeff Greenhouse. Mm-hmm. And we concluded with a, an agenda for change. Uh, and, and we weren't the only ones writing about this in the 90s. Uh, which included you know virtually all the things that you have uh, identified as important for our social policy as well as our cultural uh, you know infusion of certain ideals and models for you know the roles of men and women in society and at home you know through our education system private sector policies and practices and we laid it out uh, a few years later. I did a study comparing the the millennials and gen. Uh, Xers who were graduating from Wharton 1992 to to 2012 and concluded that with an updated, uh, this is in 2012, uh, you know, here's the policy agenda, the seven things that need to change in America, which the Harvard Business Review made their, you know, number one ideas in management in 2013, (laughs) all over the place. Now, here we are, it's 2019, and... We haven't really moved that far. I mean, we have some, but I, I want to make sure we come back to this in the second half. Like, the pace of change has not been fast enough for me, nor for you, for for most people who think about this. What do we need to do to really spur, uh, you know, cultural policy change in our society? Um, I'm, I'm again wanting to come back to that, but mm-hmm. your optimism, I am so glad to hear, and this research is is so important in helping to inform what we might do. Let's move to what you learned from the Germans and the Italians that uh, that helps to inform the picture here at home and internationally.
0: Yeah. So Germany is an interesting case. I did interviews in both former East Germany and also in Western Germany.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what I learned is that these really progressive policies that perhaps on paper um, would be the envy of most American moms, uh, what I learned is that when these progressive policies are enacted in a traditional cultural environment, one that really values um, moms staying at home with kids for the first few years of their lives Mm -hmm. while dads work outside the home. When women took advantage of those policies that, for example, um, enabled them to go back to work quickly um, or perhaps um, enroll their child in a daycare facility when they were still quite young, women were really stigmatized for it. And in the German language, they actually have a word for this.
2: Mm -hmm. um,
0: that women taught me and that that word is or raven mother a selfish mom who flies away from the nest to leave her kids all alone while she pursues a career wow and women felt really stigmatized for this these were ambitious women who were highly educated and they they had goals for themselves professionally that when they took advantage of those policies they ended up feeling like bad mothers as a result. And that, to me, was a great example of this disconnect between policy and culture that really left some moms in the lurch.
1: So this was West and East Germany?
0: Uh, Western Germany more so. We have much more progressive um, cultural attitudes about maternal employment in, in former East Germany because of its socialist
1: history. So it's more likely that women will feel supported culturally, like it's not stigmatized for them to be employed?
0: Exactly. That's exactly right. So, in the forty years that former East Germany occupied, operated as its own independent country in the aftermath of World War II, maternal employment was more or less required, and moms were expected to work most, mostly full time outside the home. Mm-hmm. They had a socialist system of childcare, where kids entered daycare at roughly six to eight weeks years old, six to eight weeks old, and moms returned to work while still being mostly responsible for uh, housework and, and caregiving, and so today, former East Germany maintains this legacy of near full female employment and near full employment amongst moms. And they didn't really experience a whole lot of stigma for working outside the home. But because after the country reunified uh, in 1989,
2: mm-hmm.
0: these West German policies were, were um, imported to former East Germany and suddenly overnight, women were asked to stay home. They were encouraged to leave the, the workforce and remain at home, and this created a huge cultural difference I missed that.
1: Can you say why? What was the motivation for that? Uh,
0: The former East Germany had no choice, because uh, Western Germany, their infrastructure, their laws, their social institutions were now applicable to the entire country. No longer applicable were any of the socialist policies that had defined the GDR for 40 years. So once the country reunified after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, what we see is the country reunified under West Germany's policies.
1: Right. And that meant that women in East Germany were now no longer supported.
0: In exactly. The... Or, or were supported for working outside the home. They were supported for mm. staying at home. Um, but these women had grown up thinking that it was normal and common and acceptable and, in fact, encouraged to work outside the home as a mom. Wow. And now, suddenly, overnight, they were being told, no, no, good mothers stay at home. And here is three years of parental leave for you to stay home in order to fulfill that
1: ideal. Three years. Three years. That's the standard in Germany now? Uh,
0: that was the standard in Germany for many decades, up until um, the mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s, when the German government initiated a dramatic shift in their policies to what now looks like a Scandinavian model, much more similar to Sweden, mm-hmm. because the government was very worried about uh, low rates of fertility and low rates of employment, um, especially among skilled laborers. So they wanted more women to work, and they wanted people to have more babies, and what we know is that when you implement progressive work family policies, more robust sets of them that enable people to balance work and family more compatibly, what you get is an increase in fertility and an increase in mother's labor force participation. So with that instrumental rationale, they instituted sweeping changes that have been implemented in the Mm -hmm. past decade or so.
1: And what's, what's the current state of play in Germany?
0: Great question. So the policies now on the books look like Sweden, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, this meant the creation of many hundreds of thousands of places in childcare facilities because in Germany, uh, children were only guaranteed a spot in a public daycare facility from the age of three and above
2: mm-hmm. until
0: these policies were initiated. And they now are guaranteed a spot at the age of one. And so, again, this meant the creation okay. of many hundreds of thousands of new spots for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and they shortened parental leave to one year from three, which was a dramatic change as well. Mm-hmm. And what I what I found is, especially in the Western German cases, again, that women really felt like they were kind of on rocky terrain. They had what now looked like a progressive set of policies, but
2: mm-hmm.
0: kind of traditional cultural attitudes that still said that they were a raven mother if they went back to work. And so um, this progressive policy enactment in the traditional cultural environment of western Germany really left moms feeling stigmatized if they left the home to go to work and then at work stigmatized for not being home with their kids so it was sort of a lose-lose
1: Caitlin uh, you gave us a, a great summary of what you found in Sweden in Germany you also studied working mothers in Italy what's the story there
0: Well, Working moms in Italy are stressed to the max, and they think that they are more stressed than any moms anywhere. Um, I would beg to differ because they have more policy supports than American moms do, but they also face really unreasonable expectations in the workplace for Hmm. being fully committed to the job, Hmm. and at home they face more or less the full responsibility for domestic work and caregiving, and they really feel stressed to the max. And what stood out to me the most amongst Italian moms is how frustrated they felt at the federal government for its lack of support for their day-to-day responsibilities. It was this anger and frustration that they explained to me time and again that really stood in contrast with American moms who, again, didn't ever mention, for the most part, a role for the government in helping resolve their work-family conflict, whereas Italian moms thought they had a big role to play and weren't doing enough to help them.
1: Hmm. And so their expectation, how would you summarize it?
0: Italian moms wanted to seamlessly combine work and family in ways that they perceived their European neighbors to be doing, like those in Germany and Sweden. They knew that it was possible because they had neighbors making it happen. Hmm.
1: The proximity of the other models made it more salient for them, I guess.
0: Exactly. Exactly right. So they saw alternative possibilities. Mm-hmm. And given that they saw that things in their mind looked quite, uh, quite improved in these other countries, they thought the government should, doing a, should be doing a much better job of supporting them. So women were frustrated by the parental leave system, the child care system, the lack of flexibility on the job, the lack of understanding for family responsibilities in the workforce, and, again, these unreasonable work expectations.
1: What is the deal in terms of parental leave in Italy, just, just so, for reference in our comparison <laughs> yeah. here?
0: and and it's really different from the other countries so in italy moms are given five months of paid maternity leave and by paid it's paid out at 30 percent wage replacement mm. um, which is not nearly as much as their counterparts in germany at roughly two-thirds of wages or 80 percent in sweden and they can take this leave either two months before having a kid and three months after or one in four and so In contrast to this five months of paid maternity leave, Stu, do you want to take a guess at what fathers in Italy have available to them in terms of paternity leave? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Up until 2013, they got nothing whatsoever. And in 2013, Italy implemented one mandatory day of paid paternity leave.
1: You're going to take off a day when you could be working? Come on, guys. (laughs)
0: This one day was uh, paid out at 100% wage replacement, and it had to be taken while the mother was also on maternity leave.
1: Because they're not going to let the dad home alone with the kid for a day.
0: God forbid, right? Oh, my gosh. How do you explain this? In the past six years, they've now revamped this policy to a total of four days.
1: So. I have so many questions about like why would these differences exist, but that gets us far too deep into inter you know, culture, international cultural comparisons. When I want to bring it back home uh, to, to the United States, so what what do we learn? What did you learn about what is happening here uh, at home and what it means for what we can do?
0: American moms are drowning in stress. They are working their hardest to keep their head above the floodwaters, and it doesn't matter how hard moms tread to try to survive the, the flood, they are drowning in stress, and their conflict is not of their own making, and this also means that it can't be of their own fixing. What was heartbreaking about Wait, say things, that again? Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> what I said was that working mothers' stress is not of their own making. Yes. And that means that it can't be of their own
1: fixing. Okay. So there there must be some collective response.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And all these other countries have have determined and both enabled and implemented different collective responses. Mm-hmm. The US is an outlier for the lack of collective response that we've implemented for women's work family conflict. Well, except then- that
1: Italy's is this- well, because of the conflict between the the policy and the, the cultural values is is, and, and the comparison to the to their neighbors is particularly painful.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly right. But U.S. moms don't tend to compare themselves to women in other countries. Right. What they do is compare themselves to their neighbors or their coworkers right. or their babysitters and nannies. And when moms got any support whatsoever here in the U.S., they told me that they felt abundantly lucky or grateful or privileged. Mm. And that is really powerful because the European women talk about those policy supports as rights. They are not privileges. They are something they have a right to, that they are entitled to. And I really think we have to shift the cultural dialogue here in the U.S. to talk about things like maternity leave, paternity leave, flexible schedules, job security. We need to talk about these things as rights for working parents and not as privileges.
1: Okay. And your phrase... uh Work-life or work-family justice gets right to that, but again, now I want to return to, you know, my perspective on the the history, the recent history of this movement, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> which you know you and I are both part of at different different ends of the of the the historical spectrum here. Um, probably thirty years older than you, if not more. <laughs> um, you, we've been at this for a while, Caitlin. So what's What's different now? I mean, I have seen, and you know, of course, of you know there has been some movement towards uh, you know better in the in the private sector um, parental leave policies, family medical leave policies, particularly in the high end you know financial services, technology, but there's there's movement and and more egalitarian policies that encourage both men and women. and states and cities of course, have been advancing family and medical leave um, policies uh, now at, at a pretty rapid clip these last few years, uh, n- nothing even close to the Swedish or German models, not even close in terms of you know, the amount of time and the amount of pay. But there has been some, some movement. What is going to speed the plow?
0: Well, I would say that I agree. We have reason for hope and optimism. The fact that political candidates are now talking about being parents um, as part of their campaigns is a major shift. Mm -hmm. And you can speak to that. I'm sure it used to be the case that saying that you are a mother was a death sentence on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. And today it's, Central to platforms of women like Kamala Harris, like Elizabeth Warren, for example, um, and also for men to be talking and about Gillibrand's been
1: in front on this for, for the longest time.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I, and so we I think what we see is this groundswell of support. And, in fact, all the polling data suggests that Americans are ready for more supportive work-family policies. Mm-hmm. So, again, I think we have reason for hope, and what we need is elected officials to sort of walk their talk and implement the policies that they proposed while on the campaign trail.
1: So you you are optimistic? <sighs>
0: Um, I am optimistic that we have an unprecedented number of women running for political offices these days.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I am optimistic that men are increasing their involvement in caregiving at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think what we need to see is a heightened commitment on the part of men to be involved in an equal way in both caregiving and housework. It's that housework component that I think gets dropped out of the equation sometimes. Um, and I think we need to right. to, to vote in ways that um, support what I hope um, this phrase that you mentioned, to work family justice, becomes this movement for folks to understand that everybody should have the right to both engage in paid work in the ways that they want while caring for their loved ones.
1: Yes, it ought to be a right, not a privilege. I could not agree more. And... It is extremely frustrating to know that there are these models, and your book helps to really put in in, uh, in focus for us, you know, there are choices that we're making here as a society, and we can change, right?
0: Exactly right. You're exactly right. We can change the way that we think about our responsibilities to one another, what we think we are capable of, what we deserve. And we also need to think about what's in the best interest, of course, not only of our national economy and for businesses, um, but also for families and parents and children, right? It is in children's best interest to have time with their parents to to bond and Mm -hmm. to be cared for in the early months of their lives. And um, as you mentioned, we know that states, cities uh, are passing more progressive parental leave policies. Mm -hmm. And in places where that's happened, for example, in California that's had paid parental leave for quite a while now, Mm -hmm. all of the research coming out shows that it doesn't have a negative impact on businesses. That's the main concern people have.
1: We've talked about that a lot on the show. In fact, it has a positive effect on retention of women.
0: Exactly. And it has either a neutral or a positive impact on productivity, Uh on profitability, and as you said, on turnover and also on morale. So Yes, there is a case, um, a moral case to be made for families, a feminist case to be made for families, but there's also a business case and an economic case to be made for more progressive work family policy.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's as clear as day. And yet, uh, and I think this is what's, you know, among the many fascinating things in your study is the, the intersection of policy and cultural expectations and and values that have emerged over time that, you know, together... Uh, Influence our decision making, uh, both individually, how we think about this, you know, this problem, this challenge, and then collectively. So I wonder uh, what other thoughts you were able to um, develop about not just the policy shift, um, but the shift in 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 cultural expectations that must occur to help us move forward towards uh, a more just world?
0: I think that we need to think about caregiving and specifically child rearing as a collective rather than a personal and private responsibility. Um, Often here in the U.S., we talk about people having a kid, much like we talk about people adopting a dog, right? You don't adopt a dog if you can't care for it by yourself. You shouldn't have had one if you couldn't do that. Hmm. But dogs don't become our future teachers and doctors and bus drivers and garbage collectors um, and nurses, right? Children themselves are a public good, and we are free riding on the labor of women if we privatize that labor and assume that families will find a way to make it work all by themselves without any collective investment. And again, these other Western industrialized nations are already on board with this. It seems like a no-brainer. They have come around to the idea that it is in everyone's best interest for the next generation of workers, of taxpayers, and of citizens to be raised well. So, and if we all pay into that system, it benefits all of us—parents and non-parents.
1: Alike. You're preaching, of course, to the choir. And <laughs> so, what what I want to try to get further on here in this conversation is what uh, where's the resistance, and how do we overcome it, and and how do we help? Change the mindset that, like your mother had. Where's the where's the resistance, and how do we overcome it? What are the tools, uh, you know, the methods that that we've got available to us now to to shape uh, a new um, a new sense of justice with respect to work and family?
0: Oh, I could talk to you about this all day, Stu. I think that working mothers themselves. Can expect more of men and of employers and of their federal government. I think that when we assume that we deserve more than we currently have, it helps us, it fuels a sense of not only responsibility, but frustration at the lack of support that women are currently receiving. It's this idea that no one helps anyone else that I think is contributing to the lack of political will to pass more progressive policies. If we think, again, that families are a private responsibility and that raising kids should be up to families, which really means up to moms alone, then again, why would we pass supportive work family policy? We have to think of these as collective responsibilities. We owe this to one another as fellow citizens.
1: Agreed. How do we get there? What's holding us back? Is it because this is you know, the, you know, the, the essence of, of capitalist theory and, and, our, <laughs> and that we are not a socialist country?
0: Uh, to a degree, I think the answer to that is yes. And to be honest, do I think things like sexism and racism um, have a role to play here? When we live in a country that has the highest rates of income inequality of any country in the Western industrialized world, what we learn is that families are scared, and families are clinging to the resources they have because their futures feel uncertain. Mm-hmm. And in a state where we have such dramatic social inequality, when the rate of college, the cost to send your kid to college is so exorbitant, the cost of child care, the cost of health care, the cost of a mortgage these days, when all of those things feel impossibly expensive, it's logical that people would, you know, what we call resource hoard, right? They will hoard what they have for the sake of their own kids. But think of the sort of willingness that Americans might develop if they didn't have to worry about whether or not they could send their kid to college one day if they were admitted, if they didn't have to worry about a cancer diagnosis, meaning they would lose their home, if they didn't have to worry about their child having a safe, high-quality, and affordable place to spend their day when they go to work. If those were givens rather than what we, con- what we consider and speak about as privileges, I think the conversation would be radically different. And again, it means we have to develop a willingness to pay into a system that benefits everyone, not just us and our next door neighbors, but everyone across race lines and across class lines. Mm-hmm. And I really think it's that collective responsibility that we lack and we need to foster.
1: How? What what would be if if you if you you're, you there are people listening here who might be wondering well yeah definitely what can I do what would you say
0: well uh, abundant research shows that for example being exposed to people who are different than you. Helps develop more compassionate attitudes towards those around us. Um, so, for example, folks who were vehemently against uh, gay marriage legislation, um, once they were introduced to, for example, a neighbor or a coworker who identified as gay or lesbian or bi or any other um, sexual minority they realize that, in fact, hey, that person's just like me. They live on the same street I do. They drive on the same roads I do, send their kids to the same schools, walk into the same building every day for work people develop compassion and understanding when they are exposed to people who aren't exactly like them. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, <laughs> sending your kids to diverse public schools rather than private schools sometimes, um, exposing yourself to radio shows that are different from the ones you listen to day to day, traveling in parts of, of the city you live in that aren't, um, you know, solely in your neighborhood, visiting restaurants, cafes, music events, um, you know, volunteering in places that are very different from where you live. I think exposure can play a big role in helping people develop the compassion needed to pass more progressive policy. And
1: to be willing to invest financial resources of our, of our government in the, uh, the care and nurturing uh, of, of families and, and children.
0: Exactly. A rising hmm. tide lifts all boats, right?
1: And what else would you suggest to people as uh, courses of action that they might take, and particularly working mothers who are listening? What's your best advice for them?
0: I think that it's very important that they vote, (laughs) Um, that they vote both in, in local elections but also in national elections for policymakers who reflect the ideals they believe in. I also think that women can expect more, as I mentioned, of, of their partners and also their employers in the government. Uh, if listeners of the show are in positions of power within their organizations, I think they can do a couple of things. I think that they can um, fight for or advocate for more progressive work family policy supports like uh, parental leave, like lactation rooms, like the ability to adopt a flexible schedule or telecommute on occasion. Um, They can advocate for those because they occupy a more secure employment position within the organization and they can role model the use of those policies when they are available. So that's one difficulty, right? As you mentioned, a lot of workplaces these days, especially in the upper echelons of our labor force, do have these policies, but sometimes workers are afraid to use them because they are stigmatized or marginalized as a result. Yes. And so managers can model, like, it's okay to use these. Mm -hmm. You don't have to lie and say you have another meeting at 4 p.m. when you're really going to pick your kid up to take them to the dentist. You can say, I have to leave at 4 p.m. to take my kids to the dentist. We have to create a culture where it's okay to talk about families at work.
1: We only have a couple minutes left here, and I've got another 25 or so questions, but I can only get to one or two. Uh, One of them is, uh, just in brief, what's the most important thing that a father can do from your perspective to change the game?
0: Gender equality requires work. And the most well-intentioned egalitarian couples, when they have children, find themselves sliding into a more traditional gender division of labor in their households, Uh, Men report this, women report this, and it's common and it's understandable. But I think that we need an equal buy-in on the part of men to equal caregiving, equal sharing of domestic tasks around the house, And an expectation that it is not, um, as Americans often talk about sort of their duty or obligation, but it's men's right to be equally involved in the daily lives of Mm -hmm. their family members. Mm -hmm. And thinking about it as, again, a right rather than an obligation or a responsibility, again, drawing from uh, something I learned from Swedish dads, is that, again, thinking about this as a right will shift the way that they contribute to and participate in family life. That's
1: why I really like the phrase, Uh, Work and family justice, I think, because it gets right to that issue of this being not an entitlement, uh, well, I a kind of entitlement, a, a right and expectation that we should all have. I will bet that Allison's very proud of the work that you've produced, Caitlin.
0: I have to admit she came to the book launch here um, and I told that story that I opened the book with Uh um, and it was really fun to be able to point at her in the audience.
1: That is that's a wonderful thing to experience. What is your hope for the next generation of children coming along that perhaps you'll have some part in producing? 30 seconds.
0: (laughs) That's kind of used to. uh, I hope that folks who um, are going through school, getting college degrees today, and thinking about their future career trajectories and family lives can think about having kids and working outside the home as being compatible, but they have a right to both raise kids and have jobs that satisfy them, and those two things can be compatible rather than competing identities.
1: They can be, and they should be, and they must be if that's what we, if that's what's desired. Not everybody wants it, of course, or should be doing mm-hmm. the work of child-rearing, but for those who... Who desire that, they ought to have, uh, and they do have, the perfect right to make that happen. There's, there's much to be done here, and I'm glad that you are among the force of people who are helping to propel us forward, Caitlin. It gives me uh, a greater sense of hope and optimism about the future. Um, how can people find out more about the work that you're doing and find ways to support it?
0: Thank you. I have a website, CaitlinCollins.com, or you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Collins, and I'm happy to continue the conversation with anyone interested.
1: There's one more question. I've been asking everybody this year, 2019, the year of accountability in my aspiration uh, for our country. What do you personally do to hold yourself accountable for living according to your values?
0: Oh, what do I do to hold myself personally accountable? Um, Well, I have accountability partners, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, Those are colleagues. That's my um, ever-loving feminist partner, Bennett. um, And that's also with my parents, with my neighbors, um, by setting concrete goals for myself and then holding them accountable to to their goals and to help have them uh, try and hold me accountable to mine as well.
1: Yeah, because none of us can get things done that matter in our lives without the support of other people, right?
0: Exactly right. And we need those not only at work, but also at home and in our communities.
1: Yes. A compassionate world uh, is what we can all seek to engender because everybody needs the support of other people. Caitlin Collins, thank you so much for joining me on the show, sharing your, your brilliant research and can't wait to see what's next.
0: Thanks so much, Stu.
1: I hope you found my conversation with Caitlin Collins about cross-cultural differences and how societies and governments address the needs of working families, especially mothers, to be eye-opening, mind-expanding. Perhaps it's changed your thinking about the stress and strain you might feel as a working mother or a working father. So if you are a working parent, or if you know any and care about them, I want to encourage you to think about how your organization, your community, your local, state, and federal governments can better support them and family life in our society. Then do something. Take some action. Maybe even a small thing like finding some connection to others with whom you currently have little in common as Professor Collins suggests, and certainly in the voting booth. Well, let me know what you discover if you do indeed take some time to step back and think about who is responsible for raising the next generation and perhaps reaching out to get a better sense of connection to the greater good. Is it really just the nuclear family that's responsible? And maybe grandparents and paid help. Or does our society play a substantial part in both the cultural values it promulgates about men's and women's roles and about individual versus collective responsibility, and of course in our social policy? I'd love to hear from you. So get in touch with me Friedman at Wharton.upen.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, Check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.